Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Maz Jirani has his first starring movie out called Jimmy Bestwood, American Hero. His latest Showtime special and book were called I'm Not a Terrorist, but I played one on TV. But first, he had to convince his parents he wouldn't be a lawyer, convince his girlfriend he would make a go of comedy, and learn hang gliding in Mexico? So let's get to it! Maz. What's up? Last things first, thank you for being here because you're screening your new movie, Jimmy Vestwood. Yes. And I want to let you talk about that before we talk about everything else. Oh, you're awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm here in New York. I, li- I live in L.A., but I'm here in New York because this movie I made called Jimmy Vestwood, American Hero, which I describe as the Persian Pink Panther meets Borat. It's just a silly, over-the-top comedy. Uh, I co-wrote it, co-produced it. I star in it. It's about this guy who wins the green card lottery in Iran to come to America. There actually is such a thing. Um, He wins the green card lottery to come to America, and he wants to come to America and be a cop like his hero Steve McQueen was because he used to watch Steve McQueen movies back in Iran, and he saw the movie Bullet, and he thinks McQueen is so cool. He wants to be like McQueen, but once he lands in America, he realizes that the best job he can get is working as a security guard at a Persian grocery store. And from there, somehow he gets embroiled in this plot to start World War III, and he's got to save the world. And the tagline of the movie is, heroes are not born, they're imported. Um, and so it's just my attempt as an Iranian-American to, to do a movie, an American movie, where the person who saves the day is of Middle Eastern descent, because right. we just have never had that. Um, so it's this comedy, and it came out last weekend in uh, L.A., Encino, Irvine, uh, and D.C., and it, there was overwhelming support to the point where we ended up per screen average. We ended up fourth place right behind Captain America. Oh, very nice. Which was amazing. And uh, now, granted, they were on 3,000 screens. We're on right. four screens. But still. Um, so then this week is Per screen in- average is where it's at. That's where it's if, at. If you're crunching the numbers. That's what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying? So, um, so then this weekend it opens New York, uh, Great Neck, and Toronto. Okay. And this is all uh, us. We're distributing it. It's do it yourself. What's the market in Great Neck? The market in Great Neck is Persian Jews in Great Neck, believe it or not. There's a lot of Persian Jews. So it's great because what, what I'm counting on is I'm counting for the Persians all mm-hmm. to go, and I'm counting on them to bring their non-Persian friends. Because, okay. you know, it's a silly comedy that crosses over. Uh, matter of fact, we got into the Austin Film Festival, um, and over there we won the audience as well as the jury prize for best comedy. And there was two screenings that we had. One there was a lot more Persians at, and they liked it. Mm-hmm. Then the one that was that was fewer Persians, uh, they were loving it. Hmm. Um, so I feel you know it's got this very. Um, it's got like a little bit of a political undertone. We make fun of Fox News. We make fun of like what what at the time was supposed to be a Dick Cheney character, but now can be a Trump character. Um, and we just have fun with it, you know. And the director is a guy named Jonathan Kesselman who did uh, a kind of a cult hit called The Hebrew Hammer. Okay. Yeah. So it's a good group of people, man. Um, and it's just it, I'm, I'm telling you, I've got so much respect for filmmakers now because it's such a hard thing to do, um, and and also independent films in general in this market. Just getting into a movie theater was so hard. It was like pulling teeth for them, mm-hmm. for us to convince them that people will come see the movie. 
Um, cause they're going, Hey, we got Captain America. We've got, you know, this, what's this new movie? The good guys or whatever. Like every week there's some star studded thing coming out. We don't need you, <laughs> but I'm going like, no, we can, we can help you. Like, let us get in there. And as a matter of fact, in a couple of the theaters, one theater in DC, cause I have a big, big fan base in DC. So I was trying to get them to let me, you know, get a big theater there. Uh, and, uh, and I just done the, the Kennedy Center in front of 2,000 people and I announced, I said, guys, my movie's coming out. It's going to be at the Angelica pop-up theater. <laughs> and I was like, this is great. And then as we got closer, somebody wanted to buy out a screening. So mm-hmm. we called the theater, like, you know, someone wants to buy out a screening. How many seats does, do you guys have? And they go, uh, well, our biggest theater has 50 seats. We're like, what? <laughs> 50 seats. It's not big. It was small. And so it was crazy. So we were like, guys, put us in because they have another Angelica as a chain. They have like a beautiful, another theater that the seats like 200 people. It's beautiful. Right. So we were like, put us in the other one. And unfortunately, they didn't have room, but we stayed in that smaller theater. And our booker told us that we ended up with the second biggest weekend of the year behind Spike Lee's Chirac. Oh, very nice. And we had zero ad dollars. So it's just amazing that like this community is coming out to see this film because, again, as an Iranian American, Middle Eastern American, there just has not been anything like this. And I think that people of that background and other people are sick of seeing Middle Easterners always playing villains. Um, and this is just a silly, funny way to, to to show us. When you were when you were a kid, was Jimmy Vestwood the the dream for you? No, you know, what's funny is when I was a kid, um, so I, I was born in Iran. I left when I was six, moved to Northern California. There was, you know, as the, as the revolution was starting to happen, my family moved out. Yeah, to, what to year did you move? This was late 78. Okay. And what happened was- So you got out before the just, revolution. Just before. So, so protests had started. A lot of Iranians didn't realize that there was going to be a revolution. They thought that the Shah would just, you know, quash it like he's done in the past. And so my father was on business in New York City. And he sent for my mother to bring me and my sister out just over the winter break for two week break. And I always say we packed for two weeks and we stayed now for 38 years. Um, and we'd left my baby brother back there. He was like the newborn kid and we had to go back. Like, no, we, we, we got him out later with our nanny and some relatives and stuff. But I grew up in Northern California and being a kid in NorCal, everything was fine. Everything was great. Um, and I remember being maybe around 10 years old or so. And that's when Eddie Murphy hit big. Okay. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And so my dream was to be a comedian. My dream was to be an actor. But then coming from immigrant, an immigrant background, my parents were like, no, no, you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor or maybe an engineer. So it became this kind of clash for a while where I had to keep pushing to do what I wanted to do. And my parents kept pushing me in another direction. How did you, how did you approach that? Well, you know, what happened was, um, I was the oldest son. I had an older sister, but I was the oldest son. So my father would instill a lot of independence in me. And he mm-hmm. would say, you have to take care of your younger brothers and, you know, in our culture, like I, he, he was, the, he was the oldest son and he took care of his family. So I kind of had this, I was a little more mature for my age. And what happened was uh, it was, it was, I kind of chipped away at it. So I went to UC Berkeley and going there, my parents had convinced me that, you know, put these, put these acting dreams aside and just be a lawyer. And then maybe you could do plays on the side. I'm sorry. My mom was like, my mom would say things like, just, you know, you can tell jokes on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. So I bought into it. So I studied, I studied poli sci at, at UC Berkeley. Okay. Um, and then junior year, I went to Italy to study abroad. And while I was there, there was this professor, and I loved what he was doing. And I go, you know what? That's what I'll do. I'll be a professor. That way, my parents still think it's a reputable job, and I also <laughs> get to be in front of people. This is kind of a right. good it's compromise. A, it's a performance. It's a performance. So I got into uh, UCLA PhD program to get my po- PhD in poli sci. Uh, and as soon as I went down to UCLA to start doing this, 
Um, I went and auditioned for the main stage play, got into the main stage play. So by night, I'd be rehearsing for the play. By day, I'd be in class for my PhD. And quickly, I realized I didn't want that PhD because we talked about, we're like, what's our purpose as political scientists? And they would say, well, let's publish or perish. It's not so much about teaching in front of a bunch of kids. You guys just keep publishing stuff and come up with theories. Right. Um, so I really was turned off by it. And, uh, and so then I dropped out. And my mom thought I was crazy by that point. And by that point, my father had gone back to Iran because he'd lost all his money in America in bad real estate investments. And this was the early 90s when the government of Iran realized that they'd had uh, a brain drain as well as a, a cash drain when the revolution happened. So they told people, come back to Iran and you know do business. We won't bother you. So my dad went back. So he was back there. I'm over here. I drop out. My mom thinks I'm nuts. And she's like, you know, she's like, you did not become a lawyer. You did not become a professor. She goes, at least become a mechanic. <laughs> I swear to God, she said that. And I was like, why mechanic? And she goes, because, you know, if a revolution ever happens, you can go to another country and be a mechanic. She goes, people need mechanics. Nobody needs an actor. <laughs> right. And I was like, you know what? You got a good point. Um, but it was interesting to realize that her frame of mind is she comes from a revolution. So she's thinking about backup plans. Whereas my frame of mind, being in America, I'm like, no, follow your dreams. And so, again, it was a lot of back and forth, but eventually I chipped away at it. And in my mid-20s, I started doing stand-up and kept going. How far did you take the mechanic? Um, <laughs> I'm so, as a matter of fact, it's so funny you say that. I actually took, uh, it, I think it was the summer of my freshman year, I took a like a, an extension course mm -hmm. in, in like the community college in, in Marin where I took typewriting and um, – Auto mechanic, uh, but it wasn't to become a mechanic. It was more because I wanted to like learn how to change my own oil. <laughs> but then I quickly realized like I don't have the equipment to put my to even elevate my car to get under. You know, it's like screw this. I just a yeah. jack. A you don't have a jack. I don't have a jack. <laughs> hmm. Oh my god. Could you fix a car now? Hell no. I mean, <laughs> you know what it is. This is what it is, Sean. I'm I'm one of these guys, and I've always said this about comedians. So I go, comedians are people who can do a little bit of everything pretty good. Mm -hmm. But we're really not that amazing. Like, we're not, like, number one. Like, we're not amazing at anything else. Or else we would have been, you know, I would have been a concert pianist or I would have been, uh, an, you know, uh, whatever, a painter. I mean, a lot of them have extra talents. But I right. go, like, on stage, like, I can kind of dance as if I know how to dance. You know, I, I can do accents like I kind of know how to do accents. You know, I can, I can just do a little bit of everything. And I go, that's the perfect formula for... A jokester, you know, so I would take all these classes. I always thought like, I always thought I want to do this. I want to do this. So like, I'll tell you like, like freshman year, um, I think it was the spring break freshman year in college. There was hang gliding classes and I was like, I want to learn how to hang glide. Okay. So, so me and a bunch of buddies, we get in cars and it was like hang glide in Mexico. We didn't <laughs> think about this. We didn't think about this. Well, this is a great Wait, idea. In Mexico? Yeah. So we it seems like there's a loophole. Exactly. Here. We all drive down to Mexico. We're like sleeping in tents on the mm -hmm. beach. And at some point we're learning. So the way you learn is you get on the hang glider and two people got to hold the sides so that you don't start flying off. And you just run downhill on a beach and you're just learning how to run downhill. Right. Mm -hmm. And at some point, one of my buddies, um, he gets kind of good at it. So he starts instead of running, he starts stand, you know, like like getting up. A little bit so his hang glider starts to kind of go we're still holding it but he's starting to like fly off so in all this little trying to keep him down the hang glider like it it, it nose dives into the sand <laughs> it flips and a little piece of the hang glider breaks 
this is when we realize that we're that we're kind of in a in a dangerous situation <laughs> in that we you know the, the instructor was like okay well um you guys have to fix this and we go how are we going to fix it he goes well you got to drive back up to San Diego there's a place that will fix it and we go don't you have insurance he goes no i don't have insurance and that's when we realized like wait a minute that's why we're in mexico this guy's got no insurance there's no liability here and then also i realized that like we are there for a week and if i really want to be a hang glider like if i really want to learn how to do this mm-hmm. it's like you got to put in like a year or something at least some you, you need to commit and so I'm constantly doing stuff like that where I started and I realized, oh, wait a minute, this takes time. So when you were doing the hang gliding lessons, what what were you telling your parents you were going to do with your life? That was when I was going to be a lawyer. Okay. And I don't know if they knew that we were going for hang gliding or if they even – like maybe they didn't understand because um, my my parents, again, immigrant parents kind of – they they don't really pay attention to the details of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- actually, you know what? I think they were trying to talk us out of doing it. And we're like, no, we're just going to be on the beach. And because, because there's a famous story in the Iranian community about, I think there was like, I don't know, the Shah's cousin or something who was this, who was this, uh, um, adventurer. And he supposedly died in a hang gliding accident. So I think, <laughs> I think, I think we were told like, don't do it. And we're like, no, we're not going to go flying. We're just going to, it's just, you know, uh, and they, they kind of went with it, you know? How, but you were doing these main stage plays. That's yeah. how you describe them. Yeah. Main stage. What is, what is. Main stage plays what, so UCLA has a great theater department and they have plays all, all year long. And so okay. there's, and so there's like, um, you know, different students putting on different size plays. Mm-hmm. The main stage play was all the acting students, every, I think UCLA is a quarter system. So I think every quarter. There is, especially the fall and then the winter and then the spring, those three quarters, uh, an MFA student, someone who's getting their master in fine arts as a director, um, gets to direct the big play. And so it was the main stage. So it's a bigger theater. Um, it's got, got a huge budget, very artistic, and it's something that all the acting students that are there for four years studying are trying to get into. Like that's what, that's the main goal. Like if you get in on one of those, it's, it's a great showcase. It's a, it's a great immersion. You get to work with the best directors. So I was there for Poli Sci, but I kind of like not really knowing what I'm doing. I went over and I was like, are there any auditions? And they were like, yeah, there's an audition for this play. So I just put my name down mm-hmm. and then I auditioned and I got it. And so there's like five or six actors. So all of a sudden I came out of nowhere and ended up, ended up being in the main stage play. And again, it was very artistic and there was this like the director was great and the, and the set design and, and the storyline was amazing and it was very avant-garde. And while I was doing that, there was another girl who was going to do a main stage play in the spring. And she saw me in this play and she goes, listen, there's another play I'm doing. I, I want to put you in my play. So suddenly I'm like knocking it out of the park and all the other, all the other acting students are like, who the hell is this guy? Right. Um, and it was just like, I, I felt alive on stage. I've been doing plays all through high school in a really good theater program. So I just felt alive on stage. I love the feeling. And so when I dropped out of UCLA, a matter of fact, a funny side story. Um, so I took out a loan at the time for UCLA for that year. It was at, it was still very cheap for school, but it was $8,000 loan to pay for school. Sure. And, um, and it was kind of funny because I, I decided to drop out pretty early in the fall, cor- in the fall quarter. Uh, but I stayed in class so that I could be in the play. I stayed in you know school, and I took that the eight thousand dollar loan, and I was like, okay, if I admit that I'm dropping out right now to the school, maybe I can just return this money, and not go further in debt. But then I was like, you know what? 
I'm going to stay all the way through the spring so I can do this other play. So let me keep the $8,000. Mm-hmm. And it was funny. They gave you a, a, a UCLA student ID card. They got you $2 off of movies in Westwood. I swear, <laughs> at one point I was like, if I see 4,000 movies, I'm breaking even <laughs> like an idiot. I think I saw like five movies. Jimmy Westwood. Jimmy Westwood, right there. <laughs> Jimmy Westwood was born right there. You're right. He's kind of a bumbling idiot. So I think that that's that bumbling idiot is within me, you know. But the main stage plays aren't giving you that Eddie Murphy feeling that you no now, saw it when yeah. you were a well, kid. Yeah. Well, here's the difference between stand up and acting at that time. What I was thinking. So, so the stand up came to me where. I wanted to be Eddie Murphy, and I'm in the and I'm in my high school at the time. There's our, our high school had a great theater program, and they go, "Does anybody here?" They go, "We have a talent show coming up. Anybody want to try anything?" And at the time, I'm like 17 years old, and I was like, "Yeah, I want to try stand up." So I, I would write this material, and obviously it's all sexual based because I'm 17. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm uh, my hero's Eddie Murphy, right? right. What am I going to write about? So the material was well, at all least it's original. Original, right? It's not like you're trying to. <laughs> Pawn somebody else's act off on yourself. Exactly. So yeah, you're right. I, I didn't like take someone's act and go. Let me just recite that. So I was coming up with material. I would write this stuff. I was like, Why is our genitalia um, <laughs> in the middle of our body, where, where it's the most you know inconvenient place? Why not on our hands? We could go around like high fiving all day and having sex, right? And and I would write it. And I was like, This is brilliant. And then the next day I would read it. I was like, This is stupid. <laughs> and it was all this back and forth. Now, little side note: twenty, thirty years later. Uh, I've seen Jeremy Hotz actually do that bit at the Laugh Factory, and he does a great job with it. But I never did it. I, so what happened was I write it. Wait, so when you saw Jeremy do the bit, what was your first? I was like, I should have done the bit. <laughs> I'm a comedian, right? Actually, I told him. I said, dude, just so you know, like I I wrote something similar to this years ago. I'm not. I'm never going to do it. Right. But I said, just seeing you do it is hilarious. I said, you, you kill it. Um, but what happened was, so then I was supposed to do this stand up thing. I I would I would write it. Think it's brilliant. Look at, read it the next day, think it's horrible. And then I chickened out. I said, I'm not going to do this because here's the difference between acting and stand up. At, at that point in my mind, I go, as an actor in a play, mm-hmm. um, it's not all on you. Uh, there's the writer, there's a director, there's other actors. If it doesn't go well, it's not a blow to your ego. But as a stand up, I said, it's just all you. Like you're putting yourself out there. So I chickened out of that first, that first uh, talent show. And thank God I did chicken out because. When I, because I volunteered to like help out like as a, um, as an usher. And when I showed up, it turned out that the audience was a bunch of juvenile delinquents. <laughs> so imagine if I'd gone up and like had a bad set right off the gate with juvenile <laughs> delinquents and they heckled me, I would have been mortified, right? So, so I, I, I didn't do it then. They might have liked your genitalia. High I think they might have been into it. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> might have worked. But then, um, um, a few years later, I was at, I was at, when I was undergrad at UC Berkeley, um, there was a stand up comedy competition. For like National Lampoon's, you know, funniest young person in the country or something. So I'm just sitting at like this bar, and that day I just had like a horrible day, mm-hmm. and and I'm watching this comedy competition. There's only two people in the competition, and they both sucked. <laughs> and I was like, man, I could go on stage right now and be funnier than these guys. And I always say like I was inspired by mediocrity. So I was like, the next time there's a comedy competition, I'm gonna get into it. So flash forward like a year later, and this like the big hip hop station in Northern California has a comedy competition and they're like, you know, send in your tapes. And I had no act, but I was like, I can do accents. Right. So I had my friend videotape me doing a bunch of different accents. We submitted it. They called me up. They go, we had a thousand submissions. You're one of the 16 finalists. You're going to come down to the hip hop station to promote your, your, your show. 
So I was excited. I thought this was my big break. So I was like, I told everybody, I told all my friends, I said, guys, I'm going to be on this radio station. They're going to do a one-on-one interview. Listen to me. It's going to be great to everybody. So I go down to the radio station and I show up and it was called the Dirty Dozens Comedy Competition. And I had no idea what Dirty Dozens was until I'm sitting there in the waiting room. A black comedian walks in. Uh Another black comedian walks in. Another black. They all know each other. I don't know any one of them. I'm the only real amateur. It was supposed to be amateur comedy competition. We go into the DJ booth with with a DJ, like all of us sit, seated around. And then the guy's like, so what's up? What's this show? What's this show? And then the next thing you know, they all start going like, yo, what's up? Listen, I just want to say Pookie's mama is so fat. Da, 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 da. And it was like, yo, you know, Tyrone's sister is so black. Da, da, da. And they're doing the dirty, the dozens. And I'm in the corner. I'm just melting. I'm like, oh, my God. I thought this was going to be a one-on-one interview. This is they, these guys are going off. I got no yo mama jokes. The only yo mama joke I had was like I'd heard somebody do it once, where it was like yo mama so fat she can't wear a Malcolm X t-shirt because helicopters try to land on her. But I didn't know any of these guys. I thought they kicked my ass. So I'm just quiet and melting in the corner. And I swear to God, I don't say a single word until at the end the DJ goes, "All right, now introduce yourself." So he starts going around, and, the, and one of them's like, "This is Pookie, just saying, yo, you know." Uh, you know, uh, whatever, Michael, you're going to be out of prison soon. Hang in there. You know, this is so-and-so. I want to send a shout-out to da-da-da-da. And it comes all the way down. For whatever reason, I become as black as I can get. <laughs> I swear to God, I go, yo, 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 what's up? What's up? This is Mozzie J saying, what's up? And then I think they were looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> and, I'm think- and I'm thinking to myself, uh, I'm thinking to myself, uh, I hope nobody heard that. And I leave the station. <laughs> And I take the BART, which is the subway system, back to Berkeley from San Francisco. Uh-huh. And I'm like, listen, it was 3 in the afternoon. Odds are my friends did not listen, even though I told everybody to listen. <laughs> I'm telling you, Sean, I get home. I, I hit my answering machine on my phone. And the first message is like, what's up, Mozzie J? What's going on? They all heard it. And I felt like such an idiot. And I don't know what happened. I was just nervous, you know? And then, thank God, again, this ended up being, it was going to be a black comedy show. Mm-hmm. And I think they might have put me in there to be the guy who gets the hook. Because I was not that good. I'd never done stand-up. So, thank God, the guy who was promoting that um, was like a real estate agent. So, he ended up not selling enough tickets. And he's like, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, uh, postpone the, the show. Thank God. Because, again, I would have gone up in front of like 2,000 black uh, people uh-huh. and been horrible, and they would have booed me off stage. It would have been traumatic. So that was the second time I flirted with stand up. And then it took a little more back and forth, and finally I got on stage in my mid 20s. And that's when I realized when you do stand up, you don't worry about being judged. You're just going to keep going. You're going to do like two or three sets a night. You know what I'm saying? Like that. that's where at some point it clicked that it's not about, oh, it's just me putting myself out there and, you know, it's it's just like you yeah you're gonna you're gonna suck you're gonna suck you're gonna you're gonna be, do good you're gonna suck 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 do good do good do good do good do good bad bad you know what I'm saying? When did you figure out how to do comedy for real? So what happened was um, I dropped out of grad school to go uh, be a um, to to go pursue acting and then I quickly realized that okay I need a day job so I got a day job at an advertising agency mm-hmm. wearing a suit trying to be like you know please my mother again and. Um, while I was there, um, in my mid-20s, I thought, you know what I'll do is I'm going to work. I'm going to save up some money. So when I turn 30, I will then be able to pursue this stuff 100%. So I'm there. I'm 26 years old, and I'm doing a play on the side. Um, in L.A.? Or in, LA in L.A. In L.A. Okay. And it's a comedy. And there's an older guy at the ad agency. His name is Joe Ryan. Joe Ryan was in his 60s. 
and he saw me doing the play, and he goes, hey, you've got good comedic timing. I had like a video of it. I was like dubbing it. You have good comedic timing. Have you ever thought about doing this stuff? I said, Joe, when I was a kid, I wanted to do it. My parents talked me out of it. You know, in college, I took one class. The teacher said I should pursue it. I did it. I did some acting in grad school. I said, here's my plan. I'm going to wait till I'm 30, save up, save, up, save up enough money and go for it. And he goes, let me talk to you. He goes, listen, I'm in my 60s. And he goes, when I was in my 20s, there were some things I wanted to do, and I never got around to doing it. So he goes, if you really want to do it, do it now. And it was a light bulb moment. And I went to my boss. I said, listen, man, um, I'm going to prioritize acting. You, you can fire me if you like. And the guy, the guy was nice enough. His name is Bruce Dundor. He's like, listen, man. Stay here till you get a job. I mean, till you start getting gigs, and just keep the day job going. So at that point, I enrolled in um, uh, the Acme sketch comedy. It's like it was like a Groundlings. Okay. It's called Acme Theater in L.A. Started doing improv classes. I met a lady named Judy Carter who taught stand-up comedy classes, and that's when I got say I was 26 years old. I took her stand-up comedy classes. Um, there was a the, the teacher. Her name was Diane Nichols, and some people go like they don't believe in stand-up comedy classes. Right. I believe in them because it allows – it's like doing an open mic where where people are actually listening to you and they're going to give you feedback. So you do like seven weeks and you go in and you just keep working on your act. And if you're really serious, one of the things I took away from that class was you got to get up five, ten times a week. So we would go with these other students. We'd go to like every open mic we could. We're just trying to carve out a five-minute set. And out the gate, I had like 10 minutes. All the other kids were like at five. All the other students were at like five minutes. I had like 10 minutes of material. I was ready to go. Like it was it within me. It was in me. Like performing was in me. I was comfortable on stage. I just didn't know how to write. And it wasn't until I took that class where I learned some basic stuff about writing. And then from there, I've been, I've been hustling since 18 years ago. Was there anybody else in that class who's still in comedy? It's crazy. I run into them from time to time. A handful of them are still doing it here and there, mm-hmm. but I don't think any of them pursued it or, or or were able to get as far. Like not, you know, in a good way. Like I've I've hustled and I've I've also been fortunate to get right. to where I am. So a lot of them dropped out. There was this one guy who was really funny, um, Rod, this gay guy who was really funny. Um, but he also had a job as an executive at like Disney or something. Okay, and he's one of these guys who if he had. If he had at that point decided to quit that job, but he was getting, you know, he's an executive making good money, he could have he could have done something. Um, unfortunately, he didn't. I run into him a few times. He's, he's a really nice guy, but I'm like, dude, you had potential. <laughs> but that's you know, part of it is like you know, you see it with athletes too. Like, I don't know if you ever saw Hoop Dreams. Remember Hoop Dreams? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like these athletes were great athletes, but then like one of them blows out their knee, the other one something happens. So it's like there's a lot of people you start out with that have potential. But ultimately, it's who hangs in there the longest and takes it seriously and puts some other things together. But it's, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. So what do you think it was about you that took the class to the next level? I just, listen, I I feel that I was meant to do this. Like, this is my thing. Like, if, you know, everyone's good at something. Mm-hmm. I'm really good at being on stage and being comfortable about it. I love comedy. I was a big fan of comedy. And when I got into it, somebody asked me one time, they go, when do you consider yourself successful? They go, it used to be that if a comedian got the thumbs up from Carson, that they were successful. Right. It used to be when they got whatever sitcom, they were successful. And I told them, I said, you know when I was successful? I was successful the moment I decided to do this. And everything else has been icing on the cake. I really, it's like, like I was 26 years old. It's almost like I, I exhaled that day. And I was like, ah, oh. because, you know, I tried a bunch of other things along the way. Coming out of college, I, one of our family friends had like this guy back then, 
there was these like pyramid schemes, and one of them was like a long distance phone company thing, long distance phone sales. So it was like the guy was like, "Look, I'm making whatever hundred grand a year by I take this, I, I bought the long distance phone deal, and then I go and I sell it to my friends and family, and then they sell it to theirs, and we all make money." And I was like, "This sounds great." So I went to a couple seminars, and mm-hmm. then I took the thing, and I and I took the little like packet or whatever. I paid the guy whatever it was, fifty bucks or whatever it is to initiate. And then I think I went to my mom. I was like, hey, mom, you want to buy some long distance phone? And she goes, I don't trust it. Forget it. And I was like, and I was like, just out the gate. One no, I was discouraged. I was out. I'm done with this. Whereas when you do what you love to do with stand up, there were so many times where I would have been in situations where if I didn't really love it, I should have quit. So there were so many times, like at the time with now uh, the person who's my wife, but then she was my girlfriend. Um, she was she's she was a lawyer back then, and she had like a real job. She'd go to work. She had the lawyer job that she, your parents always exactly, wanted. Exactly, yeah. So she'd go to work, um, and uh, and I'd be at my day job. Then we get together for like a couple of hours in the evening, and then I would be off to the comedy store or the Laugh Factory. And there were so many times where she was like, "Hey, you know, you're leaving every night," and I'd be like, "Listen, I'm just gonna go do my spot. It's a 11:30 spot because when you first start at the comedy store, they're not gonna give you the prime spots." I was like, "It's like 11:30 or whatever, 11:45." I go up there. I'm getting ready to get on. Eddie Griffin walks in. <laughs> and I call my wife. I was like, a girlfriend. Then I was like, hey, uh, Eddie Griffin's here. He says he's going to do 30 minutes. I think he might do 45. <laughs> Two hours later, it's like 1245 or 1 in the morning. I'm getting ready to go. Paul Mooney walks in. <laughs> I'm like, Paul Mooney's here. I think he's going to do 30. And it's like, literally, there was times when I got on stage at 145. Dave Chappelle is here. Dave Chappelle is here. Andrew I think Dice it Clay. might be a while. Yeah. So it was this thing where like, but I wasn't discouraged. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm going to stay, and I would wait till 12.45. I'm sorry, 1.45 when it's last call. There was a handful of times when I got on stage as the last comedian in front of two or three people. And I really grew with, with that. But that's because I love it. That's why I think that's the difference between what I – with me and these other guys. Mm-hmm. Whether it was a guy like Rod who had this great job, who he was making good enough money, and it allowed him to like you know take weekends and go to Palm Springs or whatever – for me, this became the priority to the point where at one point, my now wife, then girlfriend, we broke up because I told her at one point, I said, listen, I, this is, I have to prioritize this over our relationship. And there was like a few weeks where we broke up and then I got back with her and I said, listen, I'm going to work on making both of these work. But that's really what it takes. It really takes this thing of like, I love this and I'm here to do this. Like she, at some point she said, cause I never, I never even thought about like getting married until I met my met her mm-hmm. and at one point she was like how are you gonna like help you know sustain a family with you know you would get paid 15 bucks a set at the comedy store how are you gonna do this and i said listen i love this and i said if that means in the future that i got to get a job you know a day job like being a manager at a starbucks just so we can have health insurance i said i'll do it i said as long as i love doing this i will keep doing this you know and and that's 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 what i've done what was the what was the moment that convinced her you say you you broke up, but then you got back together. What was the moment that convinced her to give you another try? You know, that was like, it was an interesting moment because it was my birthday. Um, uh, so we broke up for That's like, convenient. Yeah. We broke up for like two or three weeks mm-hmm. and and uh, it was my birthday. She called me and it was really like, it, it really was the, the call that, that changed our lives because I was kind of trying to distance myself, trying not to call her. I was like, I got to move on. You know, I got to prioritize this comedy stuff, right. and I just got—I can't be in a relationship right now. And when she called me, I was like, "Oh, I'm so happy she called me." And then that night, we ended up—I um, 
I was like, listen, you know, you know, I was like, listen, let's, you know, you know, I had a friend of mine who was a DJ and he was playing in downtown LA. And at the time, like I, I, I haven't, I'm not someone who's like done a lot of drugs, but that was around the time when like ecstasy was big. Mm -hmm. So we had gone to a couple of like uh, clubs and done ecstasy. And so that night I was like, listen, my friend's I remember playing. 2002 very well. Yeah, exactly. That's You're exactly right. And so it was like, I was like, listen, my friend's playing. Maybe we get some ecstasy. We go do this. So we went and we just had a great, of course, ecstasy, love each other, right? Mm -hmm. you know, like, we're like, oh, it was great. And then the next morning we woke up and she took the day off of work from her lawyer job. And we went to the beach and we're walking around. We're like, what are we going to do? Are we going to do this? And we're like, let's, let's try. Like, I was like, I, you know, I really having those few weeks away from her made me realize that I, that, that I really enjoyed being with her. And I think that she realized, you know what, let's give this a shot. And so I really was able to juggle it. And now more than ever, I have, we have two kids. Um, and I try as much as I can, like right now is a really busy time with this movie, but I try as much as I can to be like, okay, I'm, like two or three nights of the week. I'm definitely not putting in for the comedy shows. I'm going to be home. I'm going to prioritize, like do a date night once a week. Um, and it's just, you just got to learn to set those times aside. When was the moment when you realized that comedy could be the job? Because you said you had the day job and the guy was willing to let you hang around until yeah. it was worked out. It was a little bit of a stumbling into it. So what happened was that, that, that ad agency, I kept the job, kept the job, kept the job. And I was thinking to myself, like, I made very little money there. It was like annually. I was an assistant. So I was making like twenty five, $26,000 a year. So I was like, listen, if I get it like a – commercial or if I get a TV gig that pays me anything near that, I can quit. So as a matter of fact, at one point I was up for this one movie that it was a Chris Rock, Anthony Hopkins movie. Hmm. At the time it was called Black Sheep. And Chris Rock plays this baseball card collector whose twin brother is a CIA agent. And at the beginning of the movie, the, the agent dies. So Anthony Hopkins, who's a CIA agent, comes to the baseball card collector and says, you know, you had a twin brother you didn't know about. We need you to come play that part. And they go off fighting terrorists. So I went and auditioned early on. That was a huge hit. It was a huge hit. Exactly. <laughs> I went and auditioned and I, and, and I get a call from my agents. They go, listen, it's between you and another guy to play mm -hmm. one of the terrorists. And at the time, I didn't think anything of like, oh, I don't want to play terrorist parts. I just thought, oh, this job could get me out of this day job. Right. So I was like, great. And they go, they go, you have to have your passport ready. It was like on a Monday. They go, you may have to fly to Budapest on Wednesday. I was like, oh, my God, this wow. could be the break. Yeah. So I was excited. And then they called me to go, you didn't get it. I'm like, ah. But they said you did get a terrorist part, another terrorist part, <laughs> in a Chuck Norris movie of the week, which pays like $6,000. I go, well, that's one-fourth of the annual you know, right. stipend. So I go, let me do this. So I went and did it. And in all honesty, I felt like a jackass. And actually, when I came back, I told my agents, no more terrorist parts. Um, and then I got one more terrorist part on a, on a TV show that 24 called. And they're like, we got a ter terrorist part. I go, no, thank you. And then they go, but he changes his mind halfway through the mission. Uh, I go, ooh, the ambivalent terrorist. Let's do it. <laughs> that was the last time I did a terrorist part. But um, the way the transition happened was that ad agency started losing its business, and it started going out of business. So they started laying people off. And they eventually laid me off. Um, and so I, I got laid off. And another guy from the ad agency he was working at another, at another company where they needed a receptionist. So I go, and I'm working as a, or as a receptionist doing stand-up by night and getting my day job as a receptionist. Right. And somewhere along the lines, I got a, I got a, 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 a Rice Krispies commercial <laughs> where I sort of got – I was playing um, – oh, no, before the Rice – I think before the Rice Krispies commercial. I think we I, have the clip. No. Yeah, yeah. No, before the Rice Krispies commercial, I got Friday After Next, the movie Friday After Next okay. with Ice Cube. I went. I auditioned. I got the part. 
And I was excited. I was ecstatic. I was like, this is amazing. And I'm doing the, the, the movie and on the set, people are like, Oh my God, this is going to be your breakthrough. This is amazing. Da, 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 da. And it paid great money for two. It was like two weeks and I made like fifteen, sixteen thousand $16,000 or something like that. But that was a one time gig, right? So that movie, I shoot the movie. I'm off for two weeks from the reception job. I shoot the movie and I go back to the reception job. And it was a little demeaning in your mind because you're like, I was just on a set. They were feeding me. Right. I was hanging out with Ice Cube. And, <laughs> and at that point, I didn't know Cat, Cat wasn't a big star yet, but I was hanging out with Cat Williams and Terry Crews. And I was, I mean, that's fantastic. And now I'm answering phones again. And at the same time, though, I was like, whatever, this is part of what it is. So I went back and answered phones for like another couple of weeks. And that's when I got the Rice Krispies commercial. Okay. And the Rice Krispies commercial was this British guy who's taking pictures of Snap, Crackle, and Pop. <laughs> Like it's like a photo shoot. So it's like, sure. work with me, work with me, you know, <laughs> give me more pop, a little bit of snap, you know, like just silly. And of course, at the time I didn't have kids, but this commercial comes out and my buddy who's got kids, he's like, dude, I'm seeing you on like Nickelodeon like 10 times a day. I'm like, what? <laughs> then the check, checks start rolling in. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't know how much I made off of that, like 30, 40 grand. So that combined with the other thing. And then I started doing guest stars on TV shows. And all that stuff started helping me be able to not have a day job. And it was, I always say like early on, my acting was supporting my comedy. And then at some point when we did the Access to Evil comedy tour in 2007 and I started touring, my comedy started supporting my acting. So now it's like I'm not as worried if I don't get like an acting gig. Was Access of Evil before or after Nights of Prosperity? That was right around the same time. So okay. Access of Evil came about because uh, uh, Mitzi Shores, the owner of the comedy store, right. in 2000, she was watching some news. She's Jewish. She uh, there was a, She's Jewish? I, yeah. You, 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 <laughs> yeah. In, in Hollywood, isn't that rare? Um, you wouldn't. Um, um, uh, she she was she saw that was the latest uprising between the uh, Palestinians and the Israelis. And mm -hmm. she goes, I think there's going to be a need for a positive voice of Middle Eastern people in the near future. This was before September 11th. Oh, okay. So she's like, I want to do a show. She used to do like, she, when you, you're a regular at the club, which means you can get up anytime, like they'll put you out throughout the week. Right. But then every once in a while she would do like black comedy night, Latino night, ladies of comedy store. Yeah. So she goes, I want to do a show called the Arabian Nights and put up anybody who is like brown, but not Latino or, or black. <laughs> I swear to God. How many were there? I was the only one. <laughs> I saw it. So then the then the call came out. Do you know anybody? And so you she got three hours. Exactly. What did you get? Yeah. Then she she'd seen Ahmed Ahmed, so she mm -hmm. put him in. Okay. Uh, I told them, listen, I saw this kid named Aaron Cater. He's half Palestinian. Mm -hmm. He came in. Sam Tripoli, friend of mine. I go. Uh -huh. I know he's got some Armenian. He was in. <laughs> then they found this Indian guy. They found a a, a a white girl who did belly dancing. It was crazy. And so we do the Arabian Nights in 2000. We started mm -hmm. doing the Arabian Nights. And we would do shows, but Iranians aren't Arabs. So every time we do shows, if there were any Iranians in the audience, they'd come over and be like, listen, we really like the, the show, but Iranians are not Arabs. <laughs> I was like, I know, I didn't name it, you know? <laughs> so it wasn't until 2005 when me, Aaron, and Ahmed decided to change the name. Okay. Call it the Access to Evil Comedy Tour based on the, the phrase that uh, George Bush had started. And, um, that was it. From there, it just, it started taking off. There was this audience that was waiting to hear uh, comedians of this background because I think they were sick of being depicted the, the way they were being depicted. And the industry had no idea. Like, we were trying to get clubs to book us, and they'd be like, no, nah, you don't have enough credits, blah, blah, blah. And we're like, dude, let us do it. And so finally, Ahmed was in D.C. Um, doing a guest spot uh, under uh, Mitch Hedberg was headlining. So he does a guest spot. 
And then he said the club owner was like, uh, or I guess Hedberg was like part Syrian or something. So Hedberg gave him some love. Um, the, the club manager was like, "This you're, you're great. Uh-huh. You know, and, and Ahmed goes, we got this tour. Can we do it in D.C.? So they go, sure, we'll give you like a Monday. So we come out with Access of Evil on a Monday, sell out the club. They go, oh, great, come back and do it again. We come back, give us Monday, Tuesday, sell out the club. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, sell out the club. Finally, we go, listen, guys, just give us a weekend. And they were like, no, we don't know if you can do a weekend. You guys aren't headliners. We're like, dude, we're selling you out in the middle of the week. So because of that back and forth, we said, you know what? Screw it. We're going to go and rent a theater in D.C. and do it ourselves. We rented a 1,400-seat theater, the Lisner Auditorium, and we sold that out. And one of the managers from the improv was there, and he just couldn't believe it. And we're like, yeah, dude, we've been telling you. And we have, and we, we did not look back after that. We sold that out. We went to San Francisco, sold out the Palace of Fine Arts, 1,000 people. Then word got back to our representatives in L.A. that these guys are doing this with no promoters, just killing it. And so that's when um, Levity came on board to, to produce the special. Okay. And then the special ran on Comedy Central. And then those clips ended up on YouTube. And then we just took off from there. And now you've got the uh, the Showtime special, which came out in the last year, and the new movie. Yeah, yeah. What has been the – what or who has been the best in terms of uh, giving you advice? You know, there's a lot of advice out there. I mean, Joe Ryan, the guy who mm-hmm. now has passed away, he was great. We we would we stayed in touch after when I was when I was you know when we stopped when I stopped working at the ad agency. His advice of like, you know. He, you know, he goes, I'm in my 60s. There were some things I wanted to do when I was in my 20s. I never did it. Because if you really want to do it, go for it. So I tell people all the time, all of us, with everything, even to this day, with me, like, I want to learn piano and I keep delaying, delaying, delaying. I'm like, what am I waiting for? Just do it, you know? And once you do it, it, you're happy. So I tell people all the time, I go, if there's something you really want to do, just get off your butt and do it. Like, that's great advice. The other advice I learned when it comes to comedy, people go, How, what do I do with stand-up? I go, it's very simple. It's what I learned in that Judy Carter class. Get on stage as much as you can. Write as much as you can. Five to ten times a week, get on stage, get on stage, get on stage. You know, that's like advice that I that I, uh, that I heard along the way that's been very helpful. Um, the other thing I do is, like, I, I advise people, do it, do create your own opportunities. And whenever I advise people that, I realize, oh, I gotta advise myself to do that too. And I have, like you said, like I've now actually done three Showtime specials, which I produced two of them myself with my uh, co-producer and manager Ray Mohit. So I've done three Showtime specials. I did the Access of Evil special. I wrote a book. I have my movie, and I just keep going because no one's coming up to me. You know, I haven't gotten a call from Judd Apatow or from uh you know uh, uh, um Adam Sandler or anybody going like hey mm-hmm. I got this part you want to come do-? no I and, and nothing against those guys they're busy doing their own thing so we but Judd if you're listening <laughs> please call Moz. uh 310 <laughs> I've got his I've got his number you can get in touch with me but the idea is like you really just got to do it you know you mm-hmm. got to hustle this movie right now is like I was telling some guys last night I was talking to Ben Bailey um uh at the at the comedy cellar and I said it's interesting cuz when we did Axie Evil, you know, I got my name under Google Alert. So the, the I was coming up all the time. Mm-hmm. Then for five, six years, I was touring all over the world doing stuff. And, like, I would, you know, i get a Google Alert about, like, something of me in the press, like, once every month or something. And then I was like, oh, that's weird. No one's, no one's noticing that I'm touring the world doing my stuff. Well, then when the book came out, suddenly my Google Alerts went to, like, three a day again. And now that the movie's come out, the Google Alerts are high again. Why? Because I created my own opportunity, and there's something for people to talk about. Um, and it's just like I tell people, do it, do it, do it. 
Well, Maz, thanks for doing this. Thank I you, really sir. appreciate you sitting down with me. It's been great. Thank you, man. And this this was fun. And and this was the first time I ever talked about the skydiving thing on uh, on on a, on a podcast. So there we go. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.